you would, turn over to Psalm 127 this morning. Psalm 127. I'm going to spend a little time talking about dads. We all know what a counterfeit is, I think, right? Um, It's a fake. It's something that's not real. It's a fraud. Um, I heard a story about two junior high boys, and they thought they might try their hands at uh, counterfeiting some U.S. money. So they took a $5 bill, and they scanned it on a color scanner, front and back, and they printed it out on a color printer they had at home. They thought it looked pretty good. They thought, well, we've got to try this $5 bill out on somebody. And they thought, and they thought, and they thought, okay, who better than to try it out on than the cafeteria lady? She won't have a clue. Looks pretty genuine. So they went to school, they passed, they bought their lunch, and they passed the lady at the cashier, the cafeteria lady, the $5 bill. And uh, we all know that junior high cafeteria ladies are probably not someone who is suspect to be an expert on counterfeit bills. But she took the bill, and almost immediately she realized that it was fake. It was counterfeit. And not wanting to make that big of a deal out of it, but wanted to let them understand the seriousness of what they did, she did contact the local police, who contacted the FBI who contacted the Secret Service. (laughs) Because these people take counterfeiting U.S. money very seriously, obviously, even though they were only 13, and even though they did it on mom's printer at home, and they just had the one bill. I was thinking, man, go big, you know, $5, whatever. But they got caught. There was another counterfeiter back in the mid-2000s. Albert Tolton was his name. I don't know if you've heard of this guy. He was known as the inkjet, inkjet printer counterfeiter. And with a little bit of elbow grease and some ingenuity, this guy pumped $7 million of counterfeit bills into the U.S. economy. He used this ink, intricate multi-stage process, which covered everything from the ink to the little way you were able to mark the bills with a pen and it would show that it wasn't counterfeit. Um, The only thing he forgot to do was change the serial number. (laughs) All his bills, whether they were 100s or 20s, they all had the same serial number. Um, He actually became a clearinghouse for counterfeit money. That's how good this guy was. People would buy it from him. And... Over the years, he did something on something that you have in your home, no doubt, a little HP inkjet printer. But with a lot of experimentation when he started out, he printed on regular paper and didn't look that good. And uh, when he took the little security pen, he got a hold of one, and he'd mark them, and they'd always show up as counterfeit until he figured out that it doesn't show, or it shows valid recycled paper or, surprisingly, toilet paper. And so he began this process of using recycled newspaper 
paper pulp, and they all took the yellow mark. So he was able to print out millions of dollars. And he said, when he got, after he got caught, he goes, hey, newsprint is real cheap. And he, he finally did get caught, and uh, he's paying the price now. But today, guys, I want to talk to you about our lives, talk a little bit about who we are. Um, we're talking about our home, obviously. Um, even Christian homes are not immune to trouble. They're not immune to heartache. They're not immune to pain. Um, and I want to look to Psalm 127 to do this. <clears throat> in kind of a brief message today. I know we got the, the children in here today, so trying to be sensitive to that through June. <clears throat> but in Psalm 127, verses 1 to 5, it says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor... Those who build it labor in vain. That word means worthless. It means futile. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain, verse 2, that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sheep uh, sleep. <laughs> Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills the quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. I just want to share a couple points with you men. What's the difference between a fortress and a facade? We're talking about fathers. We're talking about fatherhood. A fortress wards off enemies, keeps people safe within the walls. A facade is something that looks good, maybe from the outside, but when you really get down to it, it's nothing more than a hollow wall. We had a facade on the platform all last week of Mount Everest, all it was was foam core painted with some blue paint. Tom did a wonderful job with all the decorations and others who helped him, and we're grateful for that. But we didn't need earth movers to take down Mount Everest Friday night. <laughs> we needed a little hot knife that cut the thing up in nice little pieces, and we carried it downstairs where it's at down, down in the hallway. See, a fortress is something that's firm. It's built on a solid foundation. A facade is something that's just there temporarily. A wind could blow it over. The first thing I see here in verse 1 of 127, where it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor in it, uh, build it, labor in vain, is the Lord's power to be a father, to be a dad, is essential. You can't do it on your own. Do you know that all of our human efforts, all of our dedication, all of our hard work, it's all nothing. Absolutely nothing unless God is in it. I was able to read a little article on deathbed regrets this past week. And the number one answer of deathbed regrets, those people who are dying and they wish they would have done something different, was this. I wish I wouldn't have worked so much and I wish I would have spent more time loving my family. Can you imagine what a horrible thing to be on your deathbed, realizing 
you missed opportunities with your wife, with your children, with your family members. See, hard work is an honorable thing. The Bible says that. Matter of fact, the Bible says you don't work, you don't eat. So we, we exalt hard work. We, we think it's, it's, it's commendable. But we also have to work hard, dads, at being faithful in pursuing Christ. We have to be, work hard at teaching our children to pursue Christ. You know, you can have all the things that money can buy. You can have everything. All kinds of worldly pleasures, all kinds of earthly possessions. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with having nice things. I'm not here to rain on your parade. The Bible says that all good gifts come from above. And I would have to say that most of us are probably pretty spoiled with some of the gifts that God gives us. He provides for our needs. He provides so we could go to the grocery store and buy food for our families, pay our mortgage, pay our rent, whatever it might be. He provides so we can put tools and other nice little things in our garage. This all comes from his hand. But see, all that we do, all that we are, all that we have is absolutely nothing unless Christ is in the center of it. Unless you're doing it for him, unless you're doing it for his honor, unless you're keeping your eyes on Christ, it's all for naught. It's just a waste, fleeting as the wind. Let me tell you, you need the Lord's power. As a dad, you need it in your marriage, first of all. Every marriage needs God's power to hold it together. What a wonderful testimony, 34 years. Incredible. We were visiting Al Swanson the other day. And Mason was asking me, how long have they been married? I said, I don't know, let's ask him. What'd they say? 70? Yeah, 75 years. Something like that. I was 96. He's going to be 96 this year. Can you imagine? (laughs) I mean, I can't even conceive of that. It's incredible. But our marriage needs Christ at the center of it if it's going to hold together, if it's going to honor Him. Our family needs Christ. If we're going to be the dad that we need to be, the leader in the home, the spiritual leader. I see a lot of dads today in our society who relegate the spiritual needs of the home to the, to the mom. And I get it, she's home a lot of times. She works around the home. She's got a job that allows her to be at home, whatever it might be. So she spends more time with the kids. But men, do not ever forget that you are called to be the spiritual leader in your home. That's not something that you give out to your, your wife. You're responsible. You're going to stand before God one day and be held accountable. And you can't point your finger at your wife saying, well, I didn't know. <laughs> it's not going to work. So we need to be reminded of that. Our family needs his power as well. And we need to be focused on that. 
Because frankly, today we think that we got everything under control and we can kind of do it on our own. But that verse says, unless the Lord builds the house. See, it implies that the house is being built. It's not saying that the house isn't being built. The house is being built. But what this word is saying, that unless God is in it, (laughs) those who build it labor in vain. In other words, the end product is not going to be what God wants it to be. It's not going to be used for his glory. The second half of that verse says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. What's this speak of? It speaks of the sovereignty of God in our lives. We're not our own master. We think we are. We think we got everything under control. We think we're in control. We're not. God is in control. And the sooner we come to that conclusion and the sooner we yield our lives to him in love and in obedience and humility and realize, okay, God, I think you got this. You created me. You probably know me better than anybody. You know my family better than anybody. I'm going to rely on your power, not just my own, to get this thing done and to get it done right. So we need to remember that God's, the Lord's power is essential. Secondly, second verse there says it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating of the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. This is a wonderful promise <laughs> to all God's people, but also to dads. Um, have you ever worried? It's what it says, eating the bread of sorrow, one translation says. Eating the bread of anxious toil. Thinking of all the the problems, the difficulties that come into our lives. And to realize, wow, we're responsible for this. Family. To be the leader. To provide. You know, if you're not careful, all those problems, all those trials can just consume you. And pretty soon the only thing your mind is dwelling on are those problems. They become an obsession. And pretty soon you're doing exactly what Philippians tells us not to do. Philippians tells us to be anxious for what? Nothing. It doesn't say, oh, be anxious about the big things. You know, you need to be anxious if you lose your job. No, you don't. God's your provider. He'll bring something along in his time, in his plan. Doesn't mean you just sit home and do nothing. You go out there and you beat the bushes and applications, whatever it takes. But realizing that God will provide. See, this is an encouraging promise from the Lord. Because we all have issues in our lives, don't we? We all have trials. We all have tribulations. But if those trials and tribulations have us, and pretty soon that's all we're thinking about, and we all know people like that. How's your day going? You know, under the circumstances. What are you doing under your circumstances? What's that mean? You shouldn't be under your circumstances. Either you realize God's in charge, or you don't. There's a lot of people that just can't help themselves but see the glass half empty. That's just their personality, I guess. But I tell you, people like that, that are prone to worry, they worry about everything. 
Medical science tells us that worry has a negative effect on your health. Anxiety has a negative effect on you physically. Stress has a negative effect on you. Now, there's some forms of stress and anxiety that are good. They motivate us to do the right thing in a given situation. We've all read news articles or maybe even had this happen occasionally to us when we've been in a situation where all of a sudden we had so much stuff flowing through our body because we were in a dangerous situation, we were able to do things that we could normally not do. People have been known to lift cars off of people. Incredible feats that normally they could never do. They have all the adrenaline flowing through their body and and all that stress is used, all that anxiety is used in a good way. But I'd say most of us probably have a lot of negative stress. You see, this is a wonderful promise from God. All that worry is in vain. Because he says there that the Lord gives his beloved rest. He really does. One thing I do real well is sleep. I do. I sleep pretty good. You know, I usually go to bed by 9 o'clock. 4 5 o'clock, the alarm goes off, and lay in bed for maybe a half hour, listen to something, a message or whatever on KFAX, and get up and take a shower, and then do the whole thing over. And when I usually hit the, hit the pillow, I'm out. I'm not one of these people that have a problem of staring at the ceiling. You know, if I have maybe some caffeine or coffee before I go to bed, that's true. But usually I just, you know, sleep like a baby. Well, not really like a baby because I snore. So it doesn't sound like a baby sleeping, that's for sure. Just ask my wife. But the important thing is, is, you know, that's, that's, that's a gift from God. You know, when you put your head on the pillow at night, are you just focused on all the stress in your life? See, because real rest is found only in Christ. Real peace is found only in Christ. Being in Christ, being a Christian, being one who's committed their life or her life to Christ. It's not going to present, prevent problems. It's not going to prevent difficulties. That's something that happens to all of us. Think of these people back in South Carolina. They're at church. They're in a prayer meeting. They're doing everything right. And someone comes in, sits with them for an hour hearing them pray, hearing them teach the Bible, and then decides to carry out his plan and kill them. Now you can look at that and you can go, wow, what kind of God would allow that to happen? Or you could look at it and say, you know what? They were ready to go. They're not here dealing with what we have to deal with day after day. If they had their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're in his presence immediately. And we need to be praying for this young man who took these people's lives that somehow God would get a hold of his heart. I've heard even Christians say in the last couple weeks, well, he deserves to go to hell. You know what? We all deserve to go to hell. That's not the question. (laughs) The question is, is there a way out? Through Christ there is. I mean, think in the New Testament... When you see the Lord out on the Sea of Galilee, he's in this boat, gets in the boat, had a hard day. He goes to the bottom of the boat, and he is asleep. And his disciples, who are savvy sailors, they're fishermen, they've been on the sea all the time. 
This storm comes in, which happens a lot over in the Sea of Galilee. It can be beautiful one minute, and the next minute, boy, you have this squall come up, and you have a rock, boats rocking and everything. But the story in the New Testament tells us that his disciples thought they were going to drown. <clears throat> now, I don't know about you, but if you're on a boat, and the captain of the boat thinks you're going to drown, <laughs> okay, that's not a good situation. I remember when I was young, Probably a preteen. My brother and sister-in-law took me to. We went. We all went to the shore, and my brother thought it'd be neat to go out on the ocean and go fishing. So he took uh, my nephew, my younger nephew, and myself, and <clears throat> him, and we went out on this, rented this boat with a bunch of other people. As soon as we got off the east coast, there out of the harbor, whatever it was, I mean, it was just a bad day. I mean, it, it was not good. The, bock, the boat was rolling and turning and tossing, and pretty soon I was heaving over the side of the boat with everybody else on the boat. Poor nephew, he, he had all kinds of things going on. So he, he had double problems, which I'm not going to go into here, but it was not pretty. And I just remember thinking, I'm going to die. This is horrible. I'm throwing up. I'm, I'm holding on to this thing, white-knuckling it. And I remember as we're pulling back into the, the, the harbor, just because everybody was sick, nobody was even fishing. And the captain got on the <clears throat> microphone, and he said, if it's any consolation, this is the first time in my career I've ever been seasick. And I thought, that doesn't give me any consolation. <laughs> Why did we go out in this mess? You know, if you're the captain and we got problems, you should know this stuff. But here's Jesus down in the bottom of the boat. The disciples think that they're all going to drown. And now, how was Jesus able to stay in the bottom of this boat asleep? I mean, that's just amazing to me. And yet, you see the same thing in the lives of some Christians. You see turmoil and 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 trials and tribulations all around them. And yet you, you talk to them and they're like, you know, God's in control. He'll get us through this. And, they're just, and I'm thinking, I would not be reacting that way. I'd be about ready to lose my mind. <clears throat> or my lunch, depending on where, where you're at. How is he able to stay just asleep in the bottom of this tossing and turning boat? The answer is simple. Jesus knew who controlled the storm. Now, you might be sitting there saying, yeah, well, I'm not Jesus. Well, neither am I. But you know what? He holds my hand, and he goes step by step with me, no matter what the storm of the life may come by. He's the one who says, peace be still. And the storm stops like that. What an incredible thing. See, there's a difference between a fortress and a facade one difference is giving God the glory and recognizing that you can't do it. You can't do anything unless Christ is in it. Another difference is recognizing that Christ holds the future. That Christ holds the future. He knows what's going to happen to you today. The other day, my grandson went down to the library and Almost 13, so I think he can go to the library and get his card and get some books. See, that's what he was doing. 
After like 45 minutes, I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to head down there and see how he's doing. I walk through this little library down here across the street from the church. I walk in there, look in the kids' section, don't see him. Look in everywhere, I don't see him. Look on the computers, I don't see him. It's not a big library, okay? This took me like two minutes. I thought he must be in the bathroom. Went in the bathroom. As soon as I opened the door, the light turned on. Mason, you in here? Nobody answered. Okay, must be back at the church. So I walked back to the church. The whole time my mind's thinking. Must be in my office, because I was in the fellowship hall when I left. I went to my office. I even looked under my desk, thinking he's playing a joke on me. I couldn't find him. Went over to the fellowship hall. He wasn't in there. Popped my head in here. He wasn't here. Stopped by my wife's office. She was on the computer. I didn't want to raise her alarm. I can't find your grandson. (laughs) So I said, I can't get my phone. So I'm thinking, I need to call the police. I don't know where he's at. So I grabbed my phone. I thought, I'm going to go back down to the library and make sure. Went back there, checked everything out. I thought, okay, this is a big step to call the police. I went back to the church, looked in the playground, looked at it. This time I'm kind of frantic. I'm, I'm very anxious. My heart's about ready to leap out of my chest. And I'm about ready to run back down, literally run back down to the playground. And here comes Mason walking up the sidewalk with six books. Hey, Grandpa, where have you been? <laughs> I'm at the library. <laughs> I was down there. I didn't see. I was sitting in the corner reading a book. All these things in those three to four minutes went through my head. What if I can't find him? How am I going to call my daughter and say, ah, I, I lost your son? See, I, I started to worry. I, I forgot who's in control. See, that's how our mind plays games on us. You know, boy, we lose the job, and pretty soon we see ourselves standing in a soup kitchen line somewhere, living in a cardboard box. We forget, no, God's in control, God has a plan. He holds the future. There's a gospel song this titled, I Know Who Holds the Future, written by Albert Smith. And it says this, I know who holds the future, and I know he holds my hand. With God, things don't just happen. Everything by him is planned. So as I face tomorrow, with its problems large and small, I'll trust the God of miracles. Give him my all in all. We also think of the song, Because He Lives, by Bill Gaither. The chorus says, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. Because He Lives, All Fear Is Gone. Because I Know He Holds the Future, Life Is Worth the Living Just Because He Lives. See, God is a God who, not only the power, He, he gives us his, his, his power to us, but thirdly here, the Lord's provision is enjoyable. He says in verses 3 to 5, the Lord's provision is enjoyable. The Lord's promise is encouraging, but the Lord's provision is enjoyable. Look at what it says here. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. See, in this particular psalm, the Lord's provision is shown to us in the form of children. He says, I'm providing for you through your children. 
The Lord's provision to us is our children. And you're probably sitting there this morning, if you've got young kids, and saying, you know, Steve, I hate to disagree with you, but my children don't provide anything for me. Matter of fact, they take a lot of things from me. They drain a lot of my energy. They drain a lot of my time. They drain a lot of my finances. They drain a lot of my patience. Sometimes I think they drain my sanity. And we have to be reminded that the Lord sees our children as a great provision and even a protection for our future. He says there, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. You know, we live in a society that doesn't have that view. We have to realize that children are a blessing. They're a gift from God. We understand that. Most parents understand that. At least most, most days they do. <laughs> but let's face the fact. We live in a society where children are not always loved. They're not always honored. They're not always valued as they should be. We kill a lot of babies right here in our own country through the process of abortion. Horrible thing. You read in the newspaper where people mistreat their children. They harm their children. People mistreat other people's children. People use hands that were supposed to be given for nurturing and caring and loving, and they use them to harm children. See, we live in a day and age where children are not always valued. They're not always protected as they should be. May we as God's people always see children as a gift of the Lord. May we value children. May we protect them. You know, I'm glad to be in a church that values our children. We count them as a gift. We actually spend money on them to encourage ministry to them. We spend time, we spend effort to bless our children in this church. And we're just a small church. But those kids are important to us. So we think it's important to invest in a thing like a playground or a ministry like VBS or Sunday school or child care. Every night this week as I was driving home after VBS at 9, 30, 10 o'clock, feeling, wow, finally get some little rest, the Lord kind of prompted me and said, Remember those moms that served all week at VBS? All those people that helped out in various ways. Some of those people are going home to a quiet little house like you, but others are going home 10 o'clock at night trying to put their kid to sleep after they get a shower, after being jacked up on sugar <laughs> or whatever we fed them. They were pretty nutritious, but still... They were jacked up on something. I don't know what it was. But, but I thought, you, now you've got to take your own kids home after spending, you know, four hours here ministering to other people's children. You know, you can't just say, okay, well, you know what? Here, here, it was nice seeing Johnny at VBS. Can you take my kids too? You know, you don't do that. <laughs> All right, maybe you'd want to do that, but you don't do that. You take your kids home. You've got to get them bathed. And Why do you do that? Because you see them as a gift from the Lord. Those kids are a blessing. They're a gift. You know what it says here? Even look at this. 
It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. It says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. You don't hear that in our society, do you? I mean, we live in a society today that, boy, if you have more than two kids, you know, people look at you cross-eyed like you lost your mind or something. What are you trying to do, overpopulate the earth? It's ridiculous. Do you know in some countries it's illegal to have more than one child? I mean, we, we truly do. We live in a society where they think there's something wrong with big families. My philosophy is have as many as you can or as many as you want, whatever. Do what the Lord has instructed us to do. Be fruitful and multiply the earth. Don't buy into the lie that more kids is bad. It's wrong. It'll harm the environment or some wacky thing. It's a lie. It goes in complete contrast to what God has told us to do. And I know that's a personal decision. If you have one child and that's it, that's fine. But don't ever think that that, that it's wrong to have more. Because the Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says that we're blessed with many children. Now, when your children are young, <laughs> and they're a drain on your time, and they're a drain on your attention, they're a drain on your resources, when your children are young and they're messing up your personal schedule, kind of like we saw in the video, why you can't just go out and do whatever you want anymore once you have kids. When you begin to realize that children are expensive and they don't get cheaper as the older they get, but they're still a blessing. See, as parents, one of our roles is to move our children from total dependence to independence. When our children are born, they're 100% dependent on us. Everything they need, we have to give them. You can't say to a little crying baby, yeah, go get some milk, it's in the fridge. You can't do that. Okay, you have to go and you have to warm the bottle out. You do all that stuff. Everything they need, you have to supply. But as they grow up, they learn to do more and more by themselves. And slowly, the percentage of dependence drops to 80%, 50%, 30%, 10%. And hopefully, by the time they're ready to leave home, They should be ready to live successfully on their own. That's just in the physical nature of things. In the spiritual sense, we want our children to move from 100% dependence on us to what? To 100% dependence upon God. And that perspective explains the, the various rules and the regulations that parents have at times, kids. The reason they tell you no is because they want you to be able to tell yourself no later in life. They want you to learn. This may not be a good idea. This may not be a good plan. They give you external rules today so that years from now, you're going to voluntarily choose to follow those rules as you move out on your own. We know that parents play a huge role in shaping what their children become. 
and dads even more so. I mean, think about it. God gives us our children for 18, 19, 20 years maybe. And they're, they're on their own. What you do in those years will stay with them pretty much for the rest of their life, ultimately for eternity. What part does influence play? Godly influence by itself cannot guarantee the salvation of your children, obviously. Salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit. We know that. But God does use a means. God uses godly parents to help produce godly offspring. We know occasionally godly parents have ungodly kids. That's just the way it is. There are the Esau's and the Jacob's out there. But godly parents do make a difference. Paul said this, follow me as I follow Christ. I pray that as a dad you can say that to your kids. That's what needs to be said. I was reading an article this past week, Richard Strauss, and he pointed out seven things that we want to accomplish as Christian parents in raising our children. First of all, to lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We want to provide the resources, the word. We want to provide the example. We want to lead them to a total commitment of their lives to Christ. We want to build the word of God into their lives. We want to teach them prompt and cheerful obedience and respect for authority. We want to teach them self-discipline. We want to teach them to accept responsibility. We want to teach them the basic traits of Christian character such as love, faithfulness, integrity, zeal, patience, and joy. Now, dads, I know you're busy. I know you got work. you got all this stuff going on in your life. We all are. But no amount of success can take the place of the role you play with your children, especially as your dad. It's not always easy, but you need to make time to play a game of catch, to attend the dance recitals, to show up at school functions. See, these things matter a lot more than maybe you realize. According to one report in USA Today, children are involved uh, with involved fathers are more confident, <clears throat> less anxious in unfamiliar settings. They're better able to deal with frustration. They're better able to gain a sense of independence. They're more likely to become compassionate adults. They're more likely to have higher self-esteem. They're more likely to have higher grade point averages. They're more likely to be more sociable. So being there for your kids, you build their confidence. You build their self-esteem. You build their Christ-esteem. And when a boy knows that he's important to his dad, he knows that he is important. Period. And when a girl knows that she is treasured by her father, she knows that she is a treasure. And that is so key in the society in which we live. We all watched last week as the Warriors took the NBA title. Found this little article on Stephen Curry, the all-star, not of that game, but of the the most valuable player of the, the association. It says, Stephen Curry is a devout Christian who had just led his team to a historic NBA championship. Curry became just the sixth player in NBA history to win his first MVP and his first title in the same season. The last player to do that was Shaquille O'Neal in 1999, 2000 season. Curry often points with his right index finger every time he makes the three-pointer. 
saying this is the way of proclaiming his love and his faith towards Jesus Christ. He says, I try to use every game as an opportunity to witness. I try to do a little signal every time I make a shot as a way to preach the message in little ways that I can. Each game is an opportunity to be on a great stage and be a great witness for Jesus Christ. When I step on the floor, people know who I represent, who I believe in. The article goes on, it says, in fact, when he designed a shoe with fitness clothing brand Under Armour, Curry had the number 413 placed underneath the shoe. And he says, it represents a Bible verse that I wear on my shoe, Philippians 4.13. It says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's how I get up for games. It's why I play the way I do. And the article concludes, it says, Curry established his strong Christian faith, listen, when he was just a boy. His parents took him to church every Sunday, every Wednesday. And it was only when he came up to the altar one day and the youth pastor urged him to make his decision to follow Christ. And the basketball star has remained committed to strengthening his relationship with God ever since. He says this at the end of the article. There are many things we have to overcome in this life with Jesus, his work on the cross. He's paid the ultimate price for us so that I'm proud to be a child of God. See, when you stop and you think about what this young man has done with his life, how God has blessed him, it goes back to how his parents blessed him when he was younger because they stood up for Christ. His dad apparently had a major impact on him. But look at what it says here at the end here of Psalm 127. It says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Bless this man whose quiver is full of them. It's interesting, but back in Bible times when they fought wars and things like that, they would use bows and arrows. Obviously, they didn't have guns. And so it says here that like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. And at the end of that verse 5, it says, He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. What's he talking about? He's talking about the time will come, fathers, when your children that you've cared for all your life there comes a time when they need to care. You need to, uh, the, the children will care for you. And some of you have gone through that with your parents. They get older, and pretty soon you're, you're caring for them. They were changing your diapers when you were young, and now you're changing them. But it all comes around. And so it says that even when you have lots of children, that day will come, you're not going to be put to shame. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his own relatives, and especially members of his own household, he has denied the faith that he's worse than an unbeliever. So I pray today that as we think of, of fathers and we think of the role that they play in our lives, that we'll remember that those three points, 
that, that God basically has a, a plan, he has a purpose for us, that his power is essential for us, that every way we need to depend on that, that the Lord's promise is encouraging, that he will provide, he'll give us rest, even though we're busy at times. And thirdly, the Lord's provision is enjoyable. Enjoy your kids. They only grow up once. And it's a blessing to be in a church where I see that. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir kind of because I see that in everybody's family, that your kids mean a lot to you. And you know what? As a pastor here at Grace, and I know speak on behalf of the leadership, you know, we don't, we don't take it a light thing to care for other people's children. And, and we appreciate the trust uh, that you have put in our church to care for your kids in, in maybe even a small way spiritually. So let's close in a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, watch this uh, little uh, slideshow from VBS in closing. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that we can <clears throat> have a day in our country where we bless our fathers. We remember what they have <clears throat> done for us. Lord, we pray that today that as we honor our, our fathers, Lord, maybe some of us don't have our fathers with us anymore, but, but Lord, you know the impact that they had on us. And Father, we thank you for their input. Lord, if, if maybe our experience with our father wasn't a good one, and we're here today, Lord, I pray that we would turn to you to be our father. That, Lord, you're a father to the fatherless. That you care for us. And, Lord, we, we pray that each person here today would come to realize that they can put their faith, their trust in Christ, in Christ alone, for their salvation. That, Lord, you can save them from the, the depth of their sin, no matter what it is. And, Lord, we just know that you can turn their, their life around when, when you give when they give you that opportunity. And Lord, they pray that their hearts would be turned to you. And as Christians, Lord, we pray that we would be, as dads, that we would be the example that we need to be. I know we're not perfect. Sometimes we don't always do the right thing. But Lord, that's where your grace comes in. That's where your uh, understanding comes in. And, And Father, we pray that we would be willing to admit our faults and seek forgiveness when needed and that it would be granted to us. We thank you for that. And Lord, just pray that you would bless our day today. And Lord, we do thank you for this past week. We were able to minister and thank you for all those that participated. And Lord, we just pray that as we uh, just watch this short little slideshow, Lord, that we would give thanks to you for all that you do uh, through the church ministry here uh, for our kids. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.